Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 191 of Mason Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I am Brian Salvatore, and I will be guiding you through this wonderful auditory journey of all things Mets for the next hour or so. Now, today, I'm recording this on Wednesday, June 22nd, it was a bit of a rough day for Mets fans. We had thought that both Noah Syndergaard and Ioannis Cespedes might be out with some major injuries. In fact, bits of the show were recorded presuming just that. But we're at, we're at the end of the night here. We found out Cespedes is day-to-day, and there was no structural damage on Syndergaard. So everybody's breathing a sigh of relief in Metsville, despite what you might hear on the podcast tonight. Uh, so without any further ado, Chris McShane and I answered your emails and talked about a couple other relevant Mets topics. So let's get right to that. Welcome back, podcast listeners. I am here with Chris McShane, and we're going to be talking about your emails and more. As always, you can email the show at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Our first email today is from Tom. Tom says, hey guys, hope all is well. He goes on to praise the podcast a little bit, and he thanks us for our book recommendations last week. Notice the gentleman we gave the recommendations to didn't thank us for our <laughs> litany of things he should read and watch, but uh, but Tom thanks <laughs> us. So um, he also wants to maybe do a uh, an amazing Avenue City Field outing. And that might be a thing we could do at yeah. some point. It's something that we occasionally talk about, and it's it's easier said than done in terms of pulling it off. But it's something I certainly support doing. Yeah. So. Even if you and I just picked a date and went, both went to the ballpark and invited listeners to come hang out, that could work too. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll yeah. talk about that. We'll definitely talk about that for the future. He also gives us a suggestion for forgotten Mets, and uh, we'll do that one next week. So I'm not going to say who it is because we'll talk about it next week. He wants us to give a shout out to one of former host Jeff's favorites, Josh Satin, who recently announced his retirement. I somehow missed that. Did you uh, know Josh Satin retired? I did. I saw that he. He came out and said that, you know, because of injuries, specifically head injuries, he, you know, had gotten to a point where he just didn't, you know, he didn't feel it was healthy to play baseball anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I forget exactly what that was. Um, God, this is a terrible pun, and but it, it rings a bell a little. <laughs> okay. But I didn't plan to say that, but it just happened. <laughs> sure, uh, sure you but, didn't. Yeah, I forget exactly what it was, but I remember hearing some of the, something of that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, sad to see him retire. You know, he was probably uh, just as good as a whole bunch of other guys who have gotten to play that role, the you know that right-handed platoon bat. Uh, but but yeah, it's always it's tough when you hear you know, guys who are younger than you retire from the sport. You're like, ooh, yeah. Uh, we should try and get him on the show. I don't see why not. That'll be fun. I feel like we'd have to bring Jeff back for that. He would be uh, he'd be pretty sore if we got Josh Satin on without him. But yes, we'll we'll see about that. Uh, but now onto the questions. Tom has. Tom says as a general question for you guys, what would you say are some of your favorite ballparks outside of city? Are there any specific reasons why they are your favorites? Any you would suggest seeing? Uh, Chris, you want to start here? I have I have two in mind, but I want to hear what you say. Okay, so my ballpark attendance list is actually not nearly as long as I'd like it to be. 
Uh, so there are a bunch of great ones out there that I've heard all about and have not gotten to see yet myself. Uh, but of the ones I have been to, Fenway Park is still my, you know, my favorite of them. Uh, just something about it. Growing up in Connecticut, I went to a lot of games up there, you know, and even pre-renovation, post-renovation, it's not that different, you know. It was. It took some time getting used to the Green Monster, having seats on top of it and that sort of thing, but, uh, you know, we, we're... When we're up in that area, and, and I like to uh, get there if I can for a game each summer, uh, just something about it going back in there to me is is special. So I know that's not like a distant one or anything crazy, but um, I know when the Mets played there in 2009, and I was at a couple of those games in that series, there were a lot of Mets fans who had never been to Fenway Park yet. So it's not that far away. It's drivable. And if you don't have, you know, if you don't have a car or know someone who does. The train and bus rides aren't bad. Um, yeah, I just did that about uh, four years ago, I guess, for the first time. And, yeah, there, uh, there you go. I, I had like, an amazing experience because I had my, at the time, like four or five-month-old daughter with me. We, we, were, we were at a wedding in Boston. I went to a game afterwards. And we were sitting in front of like the stereotypical Boston fan. Like It was like an SNL sketch of what you'd expect a Red Sox fan to be. Right. And uh, it was just like the most hysterical, amazing experience in this beautiful ballpark, too. So it was a great game and a really fun experience as well. So, yeah, I really enjoyed Fenway as well. What's, what's your other one? Uh, Camden Yards. Uh, you know, it, it lives up to everything that people say about it. And, you know, it's funny when you go to some newer places like City Field, Camden Yards, you're like, oh, this doesn't feel like like brand new anymore. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. The setting, the inexpensive tickets relative to what we're used to um you know it's uh it's pretty great and so yeah those are those are the two and then the other you know the citizens bank park in philly is is a perfectly good place to see a game um you know i'm I'm sort of just listing off all the relatively local ones (laughs) here but but like you can't go wrong you know yeah um my number one is um, PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Uh, I, I went to college in Pittsburgh, and I went to college in Pittsburgh during some lean pirate years. Okay. So my friends and I would go and, and buy the like 7 or $9 ticket, and nobody was in the ballpark. So you could sit down as close as you wanted to. And it's, it's hands down the most beautiful ballpark I've ever been to. Uh, it's great. You can walk over a pedestrian bridge from the city to the ballpark. There's uh, you know, the ballpark opens up. You can see the city skyline. There's good food there. It's affordable to get to. It very much feels like the city it's in. Like I've been to a bunch of ballparks where I feel like if you picked up that ballpark and put it in the middle of a different city, you couldn't really tell. But PNC feels like Pittsburgh, and I feel like that's a really nice quality for a ballpark to have. Uh, have you been to PNC Park? No, that's one of the ones that's on the list. That's um, well worth a trip. Yeah, and it's one of those things that it was last season the mess were there on a weekend. I didn't make it out there, mm-hmm. and then this season they weren't. Uh, yeah, uh, I think I think they were there. Yeah, they weren't there on the weekend. No, but they that's weren't one this year. That next year, if they happen to be there, it's like all right, got to do it. Yeah. Um, 
For any listeners that want to go to Pittsburgh, I can give you a whole weekend's worth of suggestions. I spent four excellent years there. There's lots of good stuff to do in that city. But definitely get to some games at PNC Park. Uh, the other one I would recommend is... Um, I'm trying to go with one that I don't hear all that much good stuff about. Like, you hear a lot about um, AT&T Park in San Francisco, and that is a nice ballpark. You hear a lot about uh, Wrigley Field, and Wrigley Field is the top of my list. I think even more than Fenway, Wrigley brings you back to what it must have been like to watch baseball 50 years ago or so. Um, But I haven't heard that much good said about Minute Maid Park in Houston, and I really enjoy Minute Maid Park. Um my brother-in-law lives in Houston, and my brother used to live there, and so I had been to a number of games there. And, um, you know, it's it's a park that doesn't have a ton of... Um, sort of looking for? To me, there, there's not a ton of gimmicks there. I think a lot of a lot of newer ballparks have a bunch of little gimmicky things about it. And, you know, yes, there's the train in center field, but overall, it's a ballpark that I think really celebrates the history of Houston baseball. I was there, I guess it was right around the time that Craig Biggio was going into the Hall of Fame. I mean, maybe it was the first year he was in the ballot, whatever it was, and they had a, a huge Greg, Craig Biggio display there. They had uh, 3,000 baseballs, one for each of his hits, and like they had it arranged into, I believe it said Biggio, or it said his number, I can't remember exactly what it was. But it, was just, it just felt like it was a place that really celebrated the baseball in that city, and uh, I really appreciated that. So yeah, those are my two suggestions as well. Um, but you can't go wrong with Wrigley or Fenway or um, Camden Yards is great, as you said. Uh, AT&T Park is great. Petco is great. Um, yeah, I haven't made it to Safeco yet, but I have. A, do you remember that show? As a Mets fan, I don't know if you remember it. There was a show on the Yes Network a number of years ago called The Yankees Ultimate Road Trip. And uh, uh... they went to every regular season game. It was like a reality show. It sounds familiar. A friend of mine I'm was sure I saw it yeah. stumbling, you know, through channels right. during baseball season. It was like two thousand five, maybe. A friend of mine was on the show the first season. So okay. he went he went to every ballpark in the American League and whatever National League parks they went to, and he went to all the playoff games. And he actually had to throw out at the first pitch of the playoff game. So I'm I'm insanely jealous of my friend Dave who did that. But he says that Safeco is the best the best in baseball. Nice. And I have not been to Safeco yet, so that's on my short list as well. Um, yeah. last question from Tom here. He talks about, uh, if we might be closer to signing, uh, Yulieski Goriel and if he was signed, if we think he would be ready for the season. And then if Wright were to come back, could we platoon him at first with Duda? And then what's the future of Wright from here on out? So let, let's take these sort of one at a time. Chris, do you think the Mets are actually any closer to signing him? Uh, no, not yet, but... You know, we'll see once they have the workout with them and like once they get a sense of what the Dodgers might be willing to pay them, you know, that might yeah. sort of shape things a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, there's nothing. It, I guess it's it's encouraging that it sounds like they will actually, I think the phrase uh, was do their due diligence. I think that's what Sandy Alderson had said to reporters. Um, so, you know, that's I'm, – I'm not expecting it. And it's not even – you know, it's not the sentiment from a year ago where it was like, oh, okay, uh, they're just going to do nothing. Uh, you know, I think they realize where they are and that they still have a very good chance at the playoffs. Um, 
and the division for that matter, you know, with as many head-to-head games as they have left. So I think they realize that, and it wouldn't shock me. I'm, I, I'm still not expecting it, but I'd be less surprised if they did this than I probably was, you know, last July when they did everything that they did. To me, this is less surprising than them resigning Cespedes. Right, yeah. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessarily going to happen either. I think it's, I think it's good for the Mets to do their due diligence. I think they're, this is very much the behavior of a team with some money to spend, and I'm just not used to seeing my team operate that way over the last you know decade or so. So to see them really attempt to kick the tires and see if there's something there, I think that's a good thing. Um, if he was signed, would he be ready for this season? Maybe. I think they would rush him to be ready for this season versus if they signed him, let's say, the middle of last season. I don't know if there would have been the same urgency to get him there. Right. Um, but just realistically, I don't I don't know. I don't believe that Cuba uses a different baseball or a significantly different baseball than the majors do. I don't see why he would need reps in an American game outside of just, if he hasn't played in a few months, getting him, you know, warmed up. Right. Yeah. That, that whole timeline thing of it. And this is, this might just be ignorance of sort of the process, you know, obviously leaving the country and coming here takes a lot of time. Um, so I guess that, you know, that that's sort of logically the, reason why a guy might not be ready to just hop right into games immediately. But at the same time, you know, he's 32, he's played plenty of baseball. It seems like one of those things that, you know, and you you saw a photo of him when he was at Dodger Stadium. You know, it's not like he's out of shape or whatever. So it's, I I, I don't quite get it. (laughs) Um, And again, this could just be... Ignorance on on my end of just not realizing how much is involved. Uh, But, you know, you hear so much every spring about players. For the most part, players don't really need spring training to be as long as it is. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's... I mean, if he were to sign, I would expect that he would play in the 2016 season. You know, I don't know what month, but... right. But I would expect that he would play because even if you send him to St. Lucie and have him do, you know, whatever level you want him to do just to play baseball, um, you know, a month, a month and a half for a guy who has that much experience playing the game. I have to imagine he could be back into it by then. Not only that, but if you're signing him to help with the playoff push this year and you wait too long to bring him up, he's no longer a help with the playoff push. They might be out of it at that point. So, you know, if they signed him on Monday, I would think he'd be in the majors by August 1st. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's an interesting question, uh, Tom. Um, if Wright comes back this season, could we p- platoon him at first base with Duda? Well, yes, we could. Uh, would it be wise to do so? I don't know. Um, do you have a strong opinion about this one way or the other? Uh, I, I don't think, and I like the, I like the optimism of thinking that he 
could be back this year. Um, but I mean, Tom does say it's unlikely. Yes, that's true. But still, it's still a question. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Even with that phrasing, I think it's more optimistic than than most. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to me, having to play a different position when in that best case scenario, he's recovered really well from the next surgery and he's you know looking to play September baseball. And his spinal stenosis isn't acting up too much. Right. I, I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't try to have him do anything new at that point, you know, and that's a situation where you can really optimize, you know, say, say all this great stuff happens, you know, they signed Guriel, right? Miraculously makes it back. Uh, and then they have too many good players for one position. You know, you can, you can shift guys around a little bit on days that you want right to play. You know, you can manage, right stenosis you can you know make sure he plays against left-handed pitchers um but i'm not going to make him for play first base that's all yeah i I would think that right would have more value to this especially if duda is back right has more value to this team as a part-time bench player than as somebody who would take a bats away from duda Yeah. And then last part of this question, what is the future like for Wright and the Mets at this point if they do sign a third baseman for more than, you know, a one-year deal? Hmm. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, and I think it went a little overlooked among Mets fans in general because his batting average was low. But Wright was still hitting. He was still getting on base, still hitting probably more home runs than people th- thought he might hit all season in the uh, the time that he was on the field. So to me, it's sort of a situation where, you know, you can, you can manage his playing time. Um, I don't know. It, it, I guess it's similar to this year. You know, if you have too many guys around where playing time's an issue. Uh, it's going to be tough not to defer to right. And it might even be wise to stick with him on the days that he's really feeling great. But it might also be a situation where, not that he doesn't respect the guys who were on the team with him when he was playing, and not that the neck injury would have been avoided if he rested more. But, you know, if you had a guy of that caliber where Wright didn't hesitate as much to take a day off because for the team's sake, he knew that, you know, the guy playing third base was going to be a really great hitter. So it's, it's one of those, like, it's only a problem if everybody's healthy and everything's clicking. And, you know, even for any player, it, you're, you're never guaranteed that the guy's going to be on the field. So, right. What I think makes, what I think makes the right situation so much harder is that so let's think back to last year with Michael Kadire. Okay, Kadire is an older player who lost playing time as the year went on to people like Conforto coming up. With Kadire, he didn't have a chronic back issue that would require him to stretch for three hours before a game 
to do so. So if you sat Kadir on the bench and then somebody gets banged up and you need to bring Kadir into the game, that was an easy thing to do. That's considerably more difficult with Wright than it is with Kadir. That's the first thing. So he's he's not as useful of a bench player as uh, as someone else would be. You know, similarly, because this is a chronic condition, there might be weeks and months when he's feeling okay. There might be weeks and months when he's feeling absolutely terrible. And so you can't pencil him in really for anything beyond, you know, I, I don't even I don't even know what a, what a baseline would be for right. So he, he, he's in a way he's a very volatile player, um, just in terms of expectations and in terms of, of what you can do with him. I, I think he's he's tougher to manage than maybe people make it out to be because of all the variables that are involved with his, with his chronic illness. So I really have no idea what happens with Wright. I, I think that if Wright, if Wright is a really bad. 2016 and 2017 I honestly don't know what the Mets do with him for his last three years under contract yeah I still want him to get every dollar of it you know yeah what, absolutely wherever where, wherever it's coming from and I I uh I will defend him to the end <laughs> but uh I mean he's our generation's I mean, he is the Mets to us in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's you know it, it, it's sort of a thing where uh, you know I'm never going to hope that he retires. I I don't care. You know all the money that he was guaranteed. Every player has the risk of getting hurt like that. But like that's the one thing that Kadir did. He, he certainly helped the 2016 roster in terms of the money that he gave up that the team was able to spend elsewhere. But, you know, he sort of planted that seed in everybody's mind that like the people oh, do that. Did, <laughs> right. I mean, who was the last guy who did it? Like Gil mesh. Was it, is that, am I thinking the right picture? Maybe. I don't remember Gil mesh doing that, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I, I'm, I'm not a Gil mesh historian or anything. I have to, I have to double check. I feel like he's like, I feel like he and Dylan G are the same person. They're pretty close, yeah. I think it's the, well, yeah. Not identical facial hair, but, <laughs> but yeah, I'm pretty sure he retired out of nowhere. But it, it's it's not the norm, and players, yes. Oh, yeah. Gilmesh retired in, uh, before the 2011 season threw away, you know, so to speak, uh, $12 million. So very similar to Kadire. Did uh, did Adam LaRoche technically give up his money this year? Yes, he did. Okay. But that, that was very that's that a was very a, different situation. Yeah, it was a protest. Like I'm I'm not going to put up with this, and here's your millions of dollars back. Yeah, for this very bizarre situation. <laughs> and we've seen as Dribble Cabrera has his kid around, but it doesn't seem like it's nearly as much. I don't know. I I. <laughs> it's funny, like in commentary and analysis i think former players can offer a lot of things that you know that those of us who never played the game at that level can but i think it can be a little overemphasized in terms of regular broadcasting oh absolutely yes but but the the whole like oh my kids here in the clubhouse and the actual clubhouse culture i i don't know if it's possible to understand that without being a part of it it's just like 
it, everything about the LaRoche thing to me was like so strange. Yeah. Um, like it's the most weird, unique workplace there is <laughs> on the planet, the sports locker room. Right. Yeah. I mean, even like I work in an office and every now and then one of my kids will be with me for a couple of hours if there's, you know, sitter issues or whatever. And even then it's and I have, a, you know, one of my kids is a newborn and it's still awkward to have him you know, hanging around. I can't imagine like my prepubescent son or like my teenage son hanging out all day at my office. But of course, it's not really an office. So, yeah, it, 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 it is the most bizarre situation I can imagine. Um, anyway, thank you for that email, Tom. Uh, we're going to move on to our second and final email of the show. And this is from Liam. And uh, strap in, folks. This is quite the email. So, hello there, podcasters. How are you? We're doing all right. I hope all is well. I wanted to suggest a few signings and you can get your take on them. Mets Twitter has been set ablaze with the most fiery of takes, given their opinion on the Jose Reyes issue. To be frank, domestic violence is always a contentious issue when it comes to forgiving the act and whether the person can ever truly overcome the label. Instead of trying to combat this complex and multilayered issue, I wanted to suggest other contentious issues that the Mets could embroil themselves in. First of all, let's sign the guy that shot Harambe the gorilla. We all know that he must be pretty accurate and can take direction. The negative public opinion would fill the seats as thousands of PETA slash ASPCA members fill the seats to throw food from a hastily constructed vegan food stand in the stadium. With that money, we can sign Guriel and Cespedes to long-term contracts. Next, I want the Mets to sign Donald Trump. Now, say what you will about President-elect Trump, but we all know that whenever he involves himself with is always great and the best ever. Wouldn't you, run, wouldn't you want to root for the best ever baseball team? Plus, he draws so many people. We can funnel Trump and anti-Trump protesters into the field to turn City Field into a modern-day coliseum. I'd put Trump in, in as catcher because his brain is legendary, so by proxy, his pitch calling would be too. Finally, I want the Mets to sign Roman Reigns. Why? He gets a great reaction. He's the guy. Picture it. Thousands of boos raining down upon the field as a crescendo of organic, vegan food pelts the players in the field. No one will be paying attention to Reyes as he probably pulls his hamstring and is out for a month. Thanks for the podcasting, Liam, formerly from Philly and now from the Bronx. Hey, he's your neighbor, Chris. He um, is. P.S. My $10 offer still stands for the ARG. And Chris, I will up it to 20 if you make it happen in the Rambling House. I am lazy. I don't know where that is. It's in Woodlawn. Okay. Is it a good bar? It is. Okay, well, we'll take it under consideration. Um, obviously, this email is, you know, sent in jest. Um I hope. I hope he doesn't want Roman Reigns. The Roman Reigns, uh, former WWE World Heavyweight Champion, is probably a better athlete than some of the guys in the Mets, just, you know, from a physical standpoint. Um, but this does raise the question of Jose Reyes. We didn't talk about this last week, and I think we need to give five minutes to this topic. Um, for those that aren't aware, Jose Reyes was arrested but not charged, or not convicted, rather, of domestic violence earlier this year. He has been designated for assignment from the Rockies, and will likely be released very soon. There have been some reports out there that the Mets are interested in a reunion with Reyes, and people have very strong opinions about this. What do you think, Chris? Should the Mets at least take a look at Jose Reyes, and what is your line with supporting somebody financially and with support and with cheers that has done something like this? <sighs> it's tough. It's... Uh... I, I'm not interested in the Mets bringing him back. Uh, 
you know, it might be as a fan, it might be easier to say that because he wasn't any good last year and wasn't really good the year before. Um, but it's, it's not just one thing or the other. It's, it's kind of both. And it's one of those that, you know, you'd like to think that he could improve and not be the kind of guy who does that thing, you know, uh, now, I, I I just want to jump in here for one second. I'm I'm not saying this is the case, but you know, with, with all these incidents, we don't really know. Um, we don't have all the details. I'm not saying we should hold the whole judgment. I think if somebody's arrested for domestic violence, that that is. I'm not saying that that he was wrongfully convicted, anything like that. Please don't construe that. But I think that there is a big difference between somebody who one time made a really bad mistake versus somebody who is a serial perpetrator of something. I still don't think, even if it's a one-time thing, the message should sign him. That's my personal belief on this issue. I, I don't think that domestic abuse should be tolerated in any way, but I think there is a difference if it was a momentary lapse of reason versus a chronic behavior. But I have no interest in the Mets going after Reyes. If this wasn't the case and he was DFA'd because he's just not a very good baseball player anymore, I still don't know if I'd be all that interested, but I would certainly be more interested than I am at the moment. Yeah. And it's, you know, you look at it and, you know, if you even, you know, if he shouldn't be banned from playing baseball for life, right? He, the league suspended him. He served that suspension, right? If you're looking at it from that standpoint. Uh, and I will take a moment here to shout out. Kate Feldman wrote a really good piece that yes, was she on did. the site. Uh, you know, it, it went up on Wednesday morning. So depending on when you're listening to this, you know, it, it shouldn't be hard to find. Uh, but, but yeah, if you're looking at it from the chan- the standpoint of, he shouldn't be banned from baseball for life and he should get a second chance, you know, try to do good with his sort of celebrity status within the game and, you know, raise awareness for domestic violence and stuff. And, you know, the, the comment section in, on the site was actually fairly civil about all this, you know, relatively speaking, as far as internet comments go. <laughs> and, you know, there's some people who are saying things of that nature. I, I get it. But I just kind of want him to, you know, if his next job in baseball is like on the Angels after they trade five people away and he just needs to go, you know, play baseball and, and kind of get back into the routine and and show that, you know, this isn't the kind of guy he is. And it, you can't do that by playing the game at all. It's just sort of time passes and no other incidents come up. But, but yeah, the tough thing is, you know, as is the case so many times with things like this, the the victim ultimately doesn't want to cooperate with the prosecution, uh, which ends up leaving a lot of things vague for, for those of us who, you know, don't know firsthand what happened. Uh, and it's, and you don't know, you know, I, it, there, I have no doubt in my mind that what happened in the police report happened, you know, like I, I know I agree. Didn't yes. go, go through the process, but I, I have no doubt in my mind that that's what happened. So what you don't know to me is you know whether or not it's something that 
he had done routinely or build up to that point or if it just blew up and you know and was the thing that happened once like I'm not, I'm not inclined to think that that was necessarily the case you know that that wouldn't be my guess but you know that it leaves a lot unknown but i'd rather ultimately i don't think he's going to be a good enough baseball player for it to matter in two years but if there were ever to be a Reyes Mets reunion, I would rather him sort of reestablish himself elsewhere first. Yes, both as a ball player and as a person. Yeah. It's just something that, you know, and Chapman has not dealt with much scrutiny because of his incident. Uh, Which is insane. I'm sorry. Right. Oh yeah, no, it, it is, but but he, you know he hasn't dealt with that much, so it's not even so much of like oh the media circus and all that kind of thing. It's just sort of a thing that you know I I don't know, like if you throw him back in that clubhouse to the extent that that sort of thing matters, you know does it does it become a weird situation, you know in the middle of the season? Uh, it's it's weird. Also, he hasn't played any of the positions the Mets have holes at. So <laughs> that is also true. That, that's a thing. You know, I understand that while I don't want him back, I understand why people might be able to, you know, forgive and move on. And you know, I would say anybody who does, I would hope that the their ultimate goal is sort of the rehabilitation of Reyes from that sort of thing. Right. You know, because. You know, whatever the crime, if somebody goes to prison for a significant significant amount of time, then not that he did, he didn't didn't at all, but, you know, they shouldn't be blackballed from working again when they they get out and all that sort of thing. And, you know, it's, I I get all that, but. To me, this is so tricky because they're, there are two things at play here. You know, I, as a uh, 22 or three-year-old Met fan, I met Jose Reyes one day, and he was incredibly nice to me. He seemed like a really good dude. And so I watched him play his whole early career in the Mets, and I had that brief interaction with him, and I've always rooted hard for that guy. So it's hard to watch somebody who you respected do something shitty, right? That, that's, that's never that's never a fun situation. Um but and there's a difference between wanting to sign him because you want to give that person who you respected a chance to prove that they're better than what people are saying they are versus saying he can help our team I don't care what he did and I'm seeing a lot more of that on Mets Twitter than I hoped I would right yeah that that's the sort of stuff the the sort of nuanced take on uh welcoming him back with caveats or conditionally i guess Mm -hmm. you know when i was at a couple of games this week the the general the pro reyes sentiment was not everything we just said (laughs) right it was jose 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 like you know this sort of nostalgic you know great speedy guy who can you know hit doubles and triples and steal bases and and all that kind of stuff you know so it's yeah, Let, let's hope it doesn't come to that. There are, I think the the thing is there are other baseball players the Mets could acquire who might be better fits for their team right now. And probably wouldn't cost 
all that much more. Right. So if you're willing to just look at it only from a baseball perspective, you know, I know you, you can sign him for the league minimum, assuming I'm assuming he clears waivers and I know that doesn't cost anything, but you know, as much as we sort of hear the incessant drone of too many home runs, you know, this isn't a team that's built to steal a million bases and, and, you know, sort of play that kind of baseball. One guy who's a pinch runner, you know, how much does that help you over the course of the rest of the season? Yeah. He, he is not the cure-all for the Mets. It's not like the Mets need a shortstop with some speed to put it all together. Yeah. And as Liam said, he'll probably pull his hamstring anyway. <laughs> there you go. So uh, real quickly, I want to touch on this very, very briefly because we're recording this Wednesday evening. We're recording a day later than we usually do. And what a day this has been for the Mets. Um, Noah Syndergaard is having an MRI on his elbow, which flared up today. Johanna Cespedes is having his left wrist examined for left, left wrist discomfort. We don't know enough about either of these injuries yet. So I don't want to necessarily be talking about the Mets' options from here on out or how serious this is. But if if either or both of these guys are out for a substantial amount of time, to you, does that seriously question the Mets' playoff chances? Uh, well, yeah, but I don't think it kills them. I mean, if you were to say, like, both were out for as long as David Wright and Lucas Duda, then, okay, that's, uh, you know. That might be a fatal blow, yeah. Right, that that's really, really tough to overcome. But, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, obviously we, you know, in the event that everything was okay and it was a minor thing and Cespedes, you know, just tweaked his wrist and there was no actual damage and he can play again tomorrow or the next day and Syndergaard just had a routine elbow checkup which you know sort of seems to be the pattern uh then great you know there's no no downside to all this but you know if there is a significant injury for either of them you know in the outfield you're looking at probably nimmo gets a shot um as he should the way he's Mm -hmm. hitting triple a you know i mean it's there's more to a player than what his stat line is in any level of the minors but you know, when you talk about earning it, uh, he he couldn't really be doing a whole lot more other than turning into like a 30 home run hitter out of nowhere right? <laughs> to get a shot to come up. So I think you'd be looking at him, uh, but it, it hinders your ability to send Conforto down if you think he might need a week or two in the minors, you know, just to sort of get locked in and, you know, get to feeling like he's a really good hitter, which we know he can be. Um so there's that, you know, and then you just sort of have the the unspectacular performance of Alejandro De Aza and the up-in-the-air status of Wollongars and his thumb. So, you know, it, it would be patchwork, but the outfield will concern me a little bit less. You know, if Syndergaard needs to miss any significant time, uh, they drop off from a guy who 
you know, Clayton Kershaw might not falter and he might just be the Cy Young winner already. But <laughs> but Syndergaard is in that conversation if Kershaw does falter. Right. You know, he's he's that level. He's, you know, he's that like Matt Harvey level of good uh, from the, you know, the, the season that Harvey was hanging up there until, unfortunately, he had his surgery. Um, and the drop off from there is it would be quite a bit more significant. So that would worry me more. And, you know, maybe one of the guys in the Vegas rotation could come up and surprise us and be, you know, better than league average. But even then, uh, you know, that's a significant gap from Syndergaard to that. So it is, um, I think that the, the Mets starting pitching is strong enough that, it wouldn't be necessarily catastrophic if anything happened, but it would it would be a big big hole in the rotation for uh, for however long as he, as he's out. Um, but I I do think it's too early to really speculate too much. Uh, what I would be more concerned about is just that, as you alluded to, the Vegas rotation doesn't have like if this happened last year, there was Syndergaard and Mats who hadn't been called up yet. Who were waiting in the wings for an injury or something, to um, you know, to, to 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 come on up. Wheeler just had a minor setback with his elbow, so there's nobody really there that you're dying to see in Flushing. So that's to me the bigger concern. Just there isn't the depth that we've had in the past for these sorts of things. Um, right. It would be nice if Montero had. I don't know. Not flamed if, out. If things, if, yeah, if things had gone differently. <laughs> He's still young enough that. You know, maybe it clicks, but I hope so. The path over the last two seasons has just been it's been a bad one. Yeah, um, um, but I don't think you know. As much as in my heart I feel the pain, I don't think that this would necessarily be the death knell for the Mets of the playoffs because the, the the Nationals are not playing that well. Cespedes hasn't been hitting all that well lately, and they've been hanging in there. But it would be, to me, losing Wright and Duda and Cespedes and Thor for any substantial amount of time. I think it would be incredibly hard to come back from that. Yeah. And then Cespedes has had, he, he's been, he had that one slump, but that's it, sort of. No, no, just, lately he's been quite good, yeah. Yeah. And it, even over the last week, you know, Lately would be the last week, but last week, last two weeks, last month, you know, he's been, he's been something else in the Mets uniform. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, him, it's, yeah, I don't know. My total speculative non-medical diagnosis was that he felt something a little weird, but you know, he's still going to get back out there soon. So if that's not the case, you can blame this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That's all we need. <laughs> that's a, that's a, uh, it's a good place to, uh, to end it for today. Don't really blame the podcast. <laughs> hey, Mets fans. It's time for This Week in SNY rundown of the greatest moments from the past week in Mets broadcasts. Last Tuesday, June 14th, 
the SNY cameras focused in on a family sitting behind home plate, and uh, with a quick look, you'd realize, oh, that's the family of NBC weatherman, today's show, uh, Al Roker. So Al was taken in the game, and uh, Keith, Keith is, uh, is very topical. You know, he, he comes up with all these, uh, these funny lines, and of course he brought out this one. Uh, from President Obama's inauguration uh, nearly four years ago now. Let's check the weather in your neighborhood. <laughs> Hi, Al. Very nice. Mr. President, Mr. President. Incredible uh, recall by Keith there. I, I wasn't even familiar with this moment um, at the time, and I had to go look it up. Um, and of course now it's, it's, you know, once, once you hear it, it's, it's hilarious. Um, Keith, Keith has a, a gift in this area. Clearly he's, he's got the, uh, the quick recall. It's what makes him ever so funny. Just a gem on Mets broadcasts. So that's all we've got this time in your This Week in SNY Minute. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Schreiber. Now back to Amazing Avenue Audio. stat, rather than continuing to depress both you and myself by further analyzing the struggling Met offense, I thought we'd do something a little bit more lighthearted today and investigate the Beat the Street game on MLB.com. I'm sure plenty of you have played or heard of this game. For those of you who haven't, uh, the idea is pretty simple. Each day you get to choose one or two players for the purposes of this exercise, we'll just say one, and you want to uh, choose 57 players in a row who get a hit. In other words, you want to beat Joe DiMaggio's hit streak record by choosing an assortment of players. Uh, they've been doing this for 10 years or something like that. It's been going on for a while. There's a $5.7 million prize pool, and no one has been able to pull it off. So uh, we're all really ardent Met fans, and uh, let's say for some reason, even if it's not the most advisable strategy... Uh, we decided we want to try to beat this game using only Met batters. Uh, and, and let's say we're smart enough to use some basic strategy. We say, okay, against a left, uh, lefty starter, I want to choose certain batters. And against right, a righty starter, I want to choose certain batters. So uh, against a lefty starter, you're going to want to choose either Yohannes Cespedes, at, who bats 349, Neil Walker at 347, or Juan Lagares at 306. We'll assume uh, within those three, you choose them equally for some reason. Uh, and that averages out to a 3.34 batting average. Against righties, your three choices are Michael Conforto, who's at 2.67, Johannes Espedes at 2.64, or Estrubal Cabrera at 2.53, which averages out to 2.61. Uh, of course, right-handed pitchers and left-handed pitchers don't occur in equal numbers, so we have 25% lefties roughly and 75% righties. Uh, remember, all these numbers are pretty rough. We don't want to get known for need to go over the top with our precision here. Um, so we do a weighted average between those two averages, so 25% weight to the 334 against lefties and 75% to the 261 against righties, and that gives us an almost exact 280 batting average. So assuming you uh, smartly select players based on the starting pitcher splits, you're going to wind up with a 280 average. Your composite player has a 280 average. So that's step one. 
Step two, let's make a very simplifying assumption and say that there are four at-bats per player uh, per game. And that's roughly correct. It might be a touch high, um, but we'll just roll with it because it's a nice clean number. So the only way you lose is if your player gets zero hits. So what's the probability that uh, your player gets zero hits? Well, first you have to ask what's the probability that the batter doesn't get a hit in any specific at-bats. That's just the complement of the batting average. So there's a 72% chance in each at bat that the hitter doesn't get a hit. This needs to happen four times. You raise that to the fourth power and you get a 26.9% chance that your batter does not get a hit. Uh, which conversely means that there's a 73.1% chance of at least one hit for your batter. It's pretty good odds for one individual game. You've got an almost three quarters chance of making a streak of at least one. However, you need to do this 57 times in a row. Over 57 straight days, you need to hit on a 73% chance. So we raise 73% to the 57th power, and we wind up with 1.75 times 10 to the negative 8th, which is a 0, a decimal place, 8 zeros, and then a 1, or a 2, I guess. And that comes out to about 1 in 57 million. Kind of ironic, considering we're trying to get a 57-game hit streak, and our odds are 1 in 57 million. Um, for a little reference on that, uh, the total number of runs scored in baseball, uh, this is since statistics were kept in 1871, slightly below 2 million. So you'd need to multiply all the runs ever scored in baseball by 19 in order to, uh, and that's like one of those runs, and that's roughly your odds of winning beat the streak with just Met batters. Uh, for something more common... Uh, that people are afraid of, you have a 1 in 700,000 chance of getting struck by lightning in any given year. So there's more. it is more likely that you will get struck by lightning before December 31st this year than it is that you will win beat the streak by choosing only met batters. Of course, there's no financial cost to the contest, so if you want to employ the strategy, go for it, and uh, if you win, you have to share the money with me since I'm the one who gave you the idea. But that's uh, that's our very simplified statistical thought experiment for this week. Hopefully a bit more lighthearted and get your mind off the Mets' struggles. Maybe give you some mind bleach for that brave sweep last weekend. And that is your weekly step. Mark Simon works for ESPN. You can find him on Twitter at msimonespn. He just wrote a book about the Yankees called The Yankees Index, which is available right now. And it's interesting because he's, well, he's a Mets fan. And so a Mets fan writing a book about the Yankees is not the most normal thing you hear every day, but Mark did it. And Chris spoke with Mark recently about this experience, as well as lots of other topics about covering baseball and baseball fandom. And so enjoy. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is Mark Simon of ESPN Stats and Info, uh, also the author of a new book, The Yankees Index. Mark, thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm great. Uh, thank you for having me. Longtime fan of the site. Ah, likewise, as uh, we we're longtime fans of your work. Um, I guess we'll start with the Yankees stuff. I know that doesn't maybe, you know, uh, sound like... People the... might turn and turn off the uh, audio. <laughs> but I, I don't think they will. I think uh, they know that, you know, you're a Mets fan, but you cover 
both teams and uh and you know write about a, a lot of general baseball things so you know how did the yankees book come about so here's the deal uh, a lot of people have been asking this question why didn't you write a met book um, it wasn't my choice. They came to me. I proofread a book for Jason Stark. Uh, it went very well. I sent them a lengthy report when it was done uh, and, told, and told them that if they ever had a project that uh, fit my skill sets, that they should bring it to me. Uh, and nine months later, they did. And it happened to be a Yankees book. And I said, <laughs> well, shoot, how many opportunities do you get to write your first book? Uh, not many. So I figured, why not? Let's let's do it. Uh, my perspective on the Yankees is one of respect, certainly, and I think that comes across in the book. Uh, and I think a lot of a lot of other things come across in the book too. Uh, most notably, uh, I guess it's a very stat-friendly book. It's a very story-friendly book. It's a good mix of both. Yeah, and I think that's sort of one of the things that I've found fascinating over the last few years. You know, finding that mix of those things, uh, you know, whether it's somebody who's writing about the game, somebody who works in the game, uh, or, or somebody who's in your shoes, you know, who's who's doing work that, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is statistical stuff, obviously, with the name of the department of ESPN that you're a part of. But, but yeah, blending those two things, I think, is sort of important especially in the in the spirit of advancing those things statistically sure and every and the subset of the book is actually every uh, every number tells a story and numbers can be great storytellers the story of 56 is the story of joe dimaggio's hitting streak the story of 61 is the great story of uh, i mean it was a movie shoot uh, of roger maris's home run chase uh, the story of 10 and 0 is a great story too you got aaron small who was the yankee in 2005 uh, who went from nothing to superstardom uh, in the blink of an eye. Uh, and his story was uh, particularly fascinating. He was very excited to be mentioned in a book. He says, you really want me in a book with Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio and Louis Eric? I said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I should mention that there is that there is a Met version uh, of this book as well. It's published by Triumph Books. If you go to Triumph Books' website, uh, you should be able to uh, find that. They did a Met book, a Tiger book, and a Yankee book. Yeah, yeah, it definitely sounds worth checking out. And in terms of yours, uh, I'm sure all of us Mets fans know at least one or two Yankee fans who, uh, you know, whether they're friends or family or whatever, uh, you know, we, we coexist with them. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a boat you can say, you, you can offer it up as a peace offering. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's so that, that, that's certainly something that uh, that I, I want to check out myself too. You know, I've, I've been to plenty of Yankees games independently, although I've been to far more Mets games. But uh, but yeah, it's it's just New York City baseball. I think there is still there's still an awareness of it here. You know, so it's uh, I'm looking forward to checking it out myself. Uh, absolutely, and no Mets were harmed in the making of the book. <laughs> uh so shifting gears a bit to the Mets, I guess, uh, sure. you, you know, you've, you've always highlighted things. Sometimes they're, uh, you know, they're always interesting things, but, uh, things that come up along the way that sort of maybe stand out or catch your eye a little bit. What do you think of this sort of difference we've seen with the team? And it, it went okay today as they beat the Royals, uh, on, on Wednesday afternoon, but, there's this big difference between the way they've hit with runners in scoring position, you know, two outs runners in scoring position, all all the sort of like clutch situations that 
get a lot of attention. Uh, and there's been such a big gap between that and what they've done, you know, just sort of generally. Not that they've been, you know, the the 27 Yankees, to use a topical reference, but, you know, they've hit much better outside of those situations. Is there anything that stood out to you um, along the way w- with those yeah, numbers? Yeah, the fact that... The fact that Granderson's been as bad as he has, I guess. I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was something like, what was it, one for 30-something with, with two out and runners in scoring position. Those numbers are, are like, they're ridiculous. I, I don't necessarily, like, I mean, it happened last year too, and eventually it kind of fixed itself, and it fixed itself once everyone was healthy and once they had a full lineup, and I think that's what's going to take this year. Otherwise, you're going to be in a situation where you're probably going to have a lot of guys pressing, and pressing is what leads to those mediocre numbers yeah i think that i hope that's what's going on with uh with michael conforto uh you know because it's just been such a big difference from what he had done you know in his first few months of his major league career into what he's done now for a good six or seven weeks uh but yeah i think that's well, I was going to say that his his he he admits he's pressing. Uh, that's that's the amazing thing about this. He's very candid about it. Uh, he's he's clearly pressing. He's over anxious on everything. He's not hitting the pitches that he was hitting. He's not hitting the mistakes uh, at all, uh, like he was hitting them uh, in April. It's it's really bizarre how that one has kind of uh, fallen apart. Because I had him picked for a 300 season the way he was going. Oh yeah, and I mean that seemed reasonable, really, and. Uh... You know, it'll take some work to get back there at this point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A lot of work. Um, another player who we're, I think, hoping gets back there, and it looks like he had recently, uh, and you wrote about it, uh, Matt Harvey, you know, had those three good starts in a row, uh, and you highlighted, you know, some of the things that stood out in those three starts, uh, and then kind of what to look out for in the next one and then the next one was mediocre you know not he didn't get shelled but he wasn't exactly good either so did any of that come true i remember it was uh i think it was contact versus swings and misses that sort of thing that it you know it, it was kind of a different harvey did you see some of the things you were looking for in his most recent start yeah, so just to, to get straight, I was co-author on that piece with Sarah Langs, and uh, we looked at a number of things. The slider was probably the most interesting thing, and in the Braves start, and this this is what will be interesting to watch his next time out, which I guess is in this upcoming Braves series. The slider didn't have the same kind of, I guess, trying to think of the, the right word to describe it, hop or veer or, move, I guess, movement simply, that it had in that three-start stretch when things were going really well. It had a, the, the, the slider in the three-start stretch looked like a strike until the very end, and then it would dart out of the strike zone. And, that's what, and that essentially is what made him so effective. In the start against the Braves, the pitch had a dart that kept it in the strike zone. It didn't, it didn't get there as, as fast, essentially, and the Braves hit it a little bit, and he just didn't have his, his most effective stuff. I don't know if that's a one-shot deal or what that is, but I, I think larger larger sample will certainly give us an indication of that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's you know it's one of those things that, and I think I I feel like a broken record at this point on the podcast saying it, but but it's uh, you know a guy who's had a track record of being that good, uh, you know, over the amount of time that he has, it, I'm always leaning towards him getting back to being you know, that kind of pitcher. But 
Right, and I think we saw that in those three starts. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, that's definitely going to be something to focus on, particularly, you know, knock on wood, hopefully everything is relatively okay when those Syndergaard's elbow, uh, you know, but even if there's a short absence for any of the other starting pitchers in the rotation, if Matt Harvey can be something like his usual self that we got used to, uh, that could go a long way towards sort of filling the gap. I think that national start that's coming up next week is going to be a very telling one for him, especially given how they hit him earlier this season. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, he, off the top of my head, I think he generally has fared well against them otherwise in the past. It's just not a team that yep. stand, stands out that, you know, kind of had his number. Um, one thing I think is something that you do regularly, uh, hard hit rates and, you know, leaders, whether they're, pitchers what they've given up against or hitters teams you know whatever uh, variety of it but it, it's sort of you know uh a topic that comes up regularly on Mets broadcasts you know there, there are a lot of exit velocity jokes uh that come out of the booth but you know it's one of those things that I think it's it's new information relatively new information uh but you've been looking at it a little bit so in your mind, what is it, you know, what's the most useful thing we can get out of hard hit rates, exit velocity, you know, other things that are being measured now that maybe we didn't have measurements for, you know, five or ten years ago? I'll give you a, a practical example. This doesn't necessarily apply to the Mets, but it applies to Victor Martinez of the Detroit Tigers. And this was like three, four years ago. And in April of that season, he got off to this terrible start. He hit like 150, whatever it was. But at the time, what this company, Inside Edge, does, uh, and Baseball Info Solutions does something similar, uh, they judge every batted ball using a set of rules that they have, not exit velocity, but they have a series of rules based on video review uh, where they'll grade it as soft, medium, or hard. And uh, they had judged Victor Martinez to have a hard hit rate that was something like 25%, 30%, somewhere up there, that put him in the top five, top ten in baseball. So it didn't make sense that he was hitting all these balls hard, but he was hitting 150. And what happens is, just like anything else, hitters go through streaks and spurts. Victor Martinez had four or five balls in the month of April that were drilled, but an outfielder happened to catch it, or a ball was hit right at where an outfielder was playing. So the idea was that if he carried over the same kind of hitting approach into May, June, July, August, and September, that the numbers would change. And by the end of the season, sure enough, Victor Martinez had about the same hard hit rate, and he wound up hitting about 300. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, and you know, he's he, <laughs> he's been a pretty great hitter. Yeah, in, in general too. Uh, <clears throat> and he's among the leaders this year as well, certainly. Yeah. Is there anybody on the Mets who stands out uh, either in either direction? That you know, it's it, it's funny. Conforto did, and then Conforto, he just kind of fell off a cliff. It was like he was in the low thirty percent. I think he was even first in baseball for a couple of days in April, uh, and I think since then he's at like twelve or thirteen, which is the equivalent of I don't want to say like Eric Ibar, but someone who's not necessarily that much better than Eric Ibar. Right, uh, and that's ridiculous. Whereas Syndergaard, Syndergaard's been top five most of the year for pitchers. 
which I guess isn't surprising. DeGrom in the past has been really good. This year, not uh, not quite as much. Uh, Matt Harvey has been really good in the past. This year, when he was going bad early, uh, his hard hit rate was actually pretty good. Then he got drilled two, three starts, and it pushed back up. Now it's I would say his hard rate hard hit rate is decent, but not what it should be. Yeah. So uh, just looking ahead with the Mets and uh, sort of the rest of this season, you know, we talked a little bit runners in scoring position, hopefully evening out, uh, you know, maybe Harvey finds himself. Is there any player that you're particularly watching other than guys either staying or getting healthy? Uh, you know, any players that are on your radar that you're focusing on? Um you know, Travis Darno came back for me. You know, he he had one of those smoked line drives in his first game back. Uh, yep. Just didn't quite clear the fence, didn't quite get over the outfielder's head, but it was caught. But I guess he he's sort of my guy to keep an eye on. Uh, but anybody yep. that you're particularly looking forward to following? On I said this last, last uh, yesterday that the biggest thing to come out of Darno's debut was the throw. And he made a great throw to second base and threw a guy out and the throw had some zip on it, which none of his throws had when he was uh, hurt and earlier in the year. Uh, the, the guy I like watching, and I really want to do a story on him, I haven't done it uh, yet, but it's on my to-do list, is Addison Reed, uh, who's been, I think, so much better than I thought he would be uh, this season. He's been very effective, and he, he's someone who works very well with Darneau, too, just as, as an aside. Uh, and Darneau is really good at stealing strikes, and Pilecki's good, too, and Rivera is as well. But the Darneau-Reed combination is a really good one, and he's able to pick off that low strike that Addison Reed seems to be so reliant on this year that's made him into such a, a good pitcher. Uh, that's and that's a, a guy that I think has been vital to uh, keeping them at the float here uh, so far uh, through 2016. And I'll, get, I'll give you one other, whoever the guy is that they get on July 31st. <laughs> I like that. But, yep. uh, but yeah, Reed, Reed has definitely been a – I was happy they got him. I was happy they kept him. But he's been – he's surpassed even my – you know, I had reasonably high expectations, but he's been just phenomenal. So, uh, yeah, I like, I like that choice. And if you – do the piece on him we, i definitely look forward to reading it and uh cool. and yeah july 31st that, that's a good way to <laughs> to look at it but uh mark thanks so much for coming on uh you know for sure. listeners you can find his work uh m simon espn right is yep, your twitter on handle twitter. yes and yep. uh everything's there and at the you know espn met site so thanks again mark yeah absolutely Hi, my name is Aaron York at Amazing Avenue Audio, and this week I'm going to talk about how it might not be the best idea for the Mets to make a desperate trade at this point in time when it seems like their offense is really weak, although seems like might not be the right term. We know that they haven't scored a lot of runs lately. We know they might be the third worst offense in the National League behind or in front of the Phillies and the Braves, two teams that do not have postseason aspirations. Lately, the trade rumors have begun to swirl as Mets owner or part owner Jeff Wilpon has come out and said 
that he wants the team to make a move not at the July 31st or August 1st this year trade deadline, but before that. And the Mets have already done a little bit. They've traded for Kelly Johnson for the second year in a row. They have signed James Loney to play first base on a regular basis with Lucas Duda on the shelf with a back injury. They've done little things here and there. They haven't made a big move yet. Now, last year, the move for Ioannis Cespedes by trading away Michael Fulmer was seen as the big move that the Mets had to make that rescued the season. Although we've spoken before about how that was only one of a number of things that happened to make their terrible June offense blossom into this amazing August offense. Not only did Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe come over and provide depth off the bench, but Michael Conforto showed up and had a really, really good rookie season. Now, Michael Conforto is a big point of contention this year as well. He's not hitting well at all since, since carrying the team. In April, he hasn't played well at all. He appears lost to the plate sometimes. He's only hitting 231, 297, 447. That's still not a terrible OPS for a second-year outfielder. It's at 745, but we know after the hot start, his OPS in recent months has been really, really terrible. So the Mets have, or at least the reporters who cover the Mets, have talked about the team sending him down. I don't think that's a great idea. We've seen the kid's talent. We've seen what he can do when he's playing well. We've seen what the Mets have coming off the bench in Alejandro Deaza. It looks like the best thing for the Mets to do right now is just to let Conforto ride it out and hope that he returns to being, if not the dominant player that they saw in April, then the impactful one that hit two home runs in the World Series last year that did all those great things for them down the stretch. So if you look at the outfield, you have, a, you have Curtis Granderson, you have Ioannis Cespedes, you have Michael Conforto. Those are three guys that Mets fans should feel comfortable with. There's guys like Jay Bruce, Jay Bruce on the trade market, but is he guaranteed to be a big upgrade over one of those guys? Curtis Granderson, not perceived as playing very well this year, but he's hit 13 home runs. He's slugging 449. His on-base percentage of 310 is really high when you consider his low batting average. If some hits start to fall in for him, his his hitting stats are going to look a lot better. So it's hard to make an improvement on the outfield. The infield, third base, a big question mark with David Wright out. You've heard Jose Reyes' name tossed around. You've heard Yulieski Goriel, who's considered the best player in Cuba. If the Mets could grab Guriel to play right now, there's a chance, pretty good chance he'd be better than Wilmer Flores and Kelly Johnson, who right now are sharing duties over there. So I could see that as a viable move. But for Reyes, they say he can't play shortstop anymore, so he'd be playing third base for the Mets. He hasn't hit that well in recent years. He doesn't hit for a lot of power. He was never big at taking walks, so his big thing is making contact and doing his damage on the base paths. Now, adding someone who could steal bases would be something new for the Mets. It could add a new aspect to their offense, so I wouldn't be against bringing Reyes back because the Mets wouldn't have to pay him any much, but if you're a Mets fan, well, obviously you're a Mets fan if you're watching this, you shouldn't expect him to 
do too much more than Wilmer Flores or Kelly Johnson. If the Mets do decide to bring him in, it'd really big be just a big three-headed monster. And then there's it'd be a four-headed monster if you add in Matt Reynolds, perhaps contributing here or there. He's started to break out a little bit with some hits at the big league level. But besides third base, you have as Drupal Cabrera, a shortstop who can hit the ball a little bit. I think you'd be, have to be happy with what he's given you so far. Neil Walker hitting for a lot of power this year. Mike Conforto hasn't been dominant lately, but he's still a really good hitter for a second baseman. It's going to be hard to upgrade that position. At first base, you're waiting for Lucas Duda to come back. The other guy mentioned in trade talks has been Jonathan Lucroy at catcher. But then you have Travis Darnot coming back and finally being healthy again. And a healthy Travis Darnot, as we saw last year, could be almost as good as Jonathan Lucroy. And if the Brewers are going to ask for a big package from the Mets when they have a healthy Travis Darnot, it's going to be hard for any reasonable person to pull the trigger on that type of deal. Darno got off to a really bad start in the 13 games he played this year, but I think it's more reasonable to look at last year's production when we talk about what to expect from Darno going forward. So while the Mets haven't played well in offense, there's something to be said for waiting it out. They still have a lot of talented, healthy players. They have a guy like Duda, who the Mets are hoping comes back by the trade deadline. And besides all of that, asking the Mets to make a trade before the trade deadline is hard because it's hard to make a trade before the trade deadline. The reason for that is teams like the Phillies and Braves, who we know are going to want to sell off some pieces, are going to wait for more teams to get in on the bidding in order to get more of a return. Unless you want the Mets to seriously overpay for someone like Lucroy or someone who can help out at third base while Lucas Duda recovers from his back injury, then the Mets would be better off staying put because if they don't overpay, then the teams that are selling are just going to wait until the trade deadline when there are more buyers to be had and more buyers means they get a better package of prospects. So Mets fans hate when the team waits around and waits for the team to get better, but given the talent that's on the field, that might be the best thing for the Mets to do, and, it, and it's probably going to work. The team's not going to keep getting shut out by the Braves every day. I wouldn't be surprised if they went into Atlanta later this week and took all four games from the Braves because the Mets are more talented than that, than that team, and they don't need to score that many runs anyway with the pitching staff they have, although it would be nice if the bullpen started to play better again, but that's besides the point. The Mets still have a pretty good team. They still don't need to score that many runs to be successful in the National League. And it's pretty hard to get a deal done unless you're trading for someone like Kelly Johnson or James Loney. It's hard to get a deal done in June when there's not a lot of teams asking for a trade. So Mets fans, you have to be patient. You have to wait for the team to get better. The team is going to hit better. Probably starting tonight because Travis Darno is coming back and Rene Rivera is a great defensive catcher, but he can't hit very much. So Mets are already going to start hitting better tonight as I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So while there might not be a trade coming, there is going to be some offense coming, especially if the Mets 
managed to improve on their terrible hitting with runners in scoring position. That's bound to improve as well. There are lots of things pointing in the right direction for this team. Doesn't mean that they need to make a trade right now. This has been Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. Hi, it's Kate with your weekly Panic City Meter. We were so close, guys. We were so close. I was all prepped. I was coming home from work. The Mets swept the Royals. It was going to be great. I was going to have a really good podcast. I was going to pretend they didn't get swept by the Braves. I was ready for this. And now Noah Syndergaard is, I who even knows at this point, tightness, I think they're calling it. It's not pretty. He is going to see the doctor. He is bringing Cespedes with him because why not? And we were, uh, I don't even know at this point. It was, we had such a good two days. Cologne was supposed to be fine after he got the ball hit off his hand yesterday. The bullpen went eight and two-thirds scoreless, which is insane for them, for any team, especially for them. And then they had a nice game today. Cabrera looks good. I'm still not willing to eat my words, but Cabrera looked good. Matt Reynolds got his first home run, his first career home run. But I don't know what this team is without Syndergaard. I mean, it's Sean Gilmartin starts, or it's Logan Brett starts, or it's you bring up Rob Gazelman if it's going to be something longer. It's not pretty. It's not pretty with Harvey looking like who the heck knows what Harvey looks like. DeGrom is still, he looks good, but he doesn't look like DeGrom. You never know what Cologne is going to look like. Masses looks good, but I don't know what this mess team looks like without Noah Syndergaard on the mound every five days. And I was really hoping I wouldn't have to find out until there were some World Series rings in that clubhouse. Other news, we are weighing Jose Reyes back at City Field. Um, I wrote about this extensively. This is what I'm panicking about the most. I don't want this. I don't think he helps this team at all. So, you know, we'll see what happens with that. I still think they're just floating a test balloon, but I'm not intrigued. And it's just, it's scary. They're still, uh, I should have looked this up, I think they're five games back right now of the Nats. It's not insurmountable. It is not even July yet. That's not, that's not a whole lot to overcome. They are, oh, they're four back. See, you get to hear my surprise. And... They can do it, but they're going to need some healthy players, and that's just looking less and less likely every day. So my streak continues of bringing you terrible, awful, really horrible news, and I apologize. And I'll be back next week, inevitably, with some more. Thanks for listening, everybody. That does it for episode 191 of Amazing Avenue Audio. As always, please email the show podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Whether questions that are logical and make sense or Harambe jokes like Liam did, we like email of all sorts, so keep them coming. You can follow all of the contributors to the show on Twitter 
Uh, I am at Brian is a nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Steve Schreiber is at underscore Mr. Met. Lucas Vlahos is at L. Vlahos 343. And Aaron is at APY5000. You can find Amazing Avenue at AmazingAvenue.com. I suggest you do so. All of our incredible contributors and many more have great articles on there each and every day. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Amazing Avenue. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, in your podcatcher of choice. Please leave us a review. That helps the show immensely. It really does get our show out there a little bit more and helps people find it. So thank you in advance for that. And until next week, let's go Mets. No more injuries. No more injuries.